All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with the great vaccine passport debate. The BC vaccine card kicks in this Monday. Proof of vaccination required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, other non-essential venues. There's lots of support for this uh, for this project, but also opposition. Does this go too far in restricting the freedoms and civil liberties of Canadians? What about the lack of a medical exemption in BC for people who can't take the vaccine because of a rare medical condition? Let's dig into this now. What a terrific panel we've assembled for you. Christine Van Gyne is the litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. They've been critical of vaccine passports across the country. Christine, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. Also on the line, Kyla Lee, lawyer at Acumen Law, very familiar to listeners here on the show, and she supports vaccine passports. Kyla, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, Christine, let me go to you first. I was just checking out your website this morning and the campaign you have going against vaccine passports. You think it goes too far. Can you briefly sketch that out, why you feel that way? Yeah, so I think it engages a number of our charter rights. The question when charter rights are engaged is always, is the is the limit on our rights justified? But first, let's look at the rights that are engaged. I think most significantly, it's life, liberty, and security of person. Uh, there's potential to engage privacy rights, although I think um, showing just a, a document saying that you're vaccinated it, at this point is minimal. But I have some concerns for how that policy might change. But the most the most concerning for me is Section 15 equality rights, which are being restricted by the failure of the government to accommodate people who can't be vaccinated for um, for, for reasons of disability. And I've talked right. to a lot of these people, and I think that that limit absolutely cannot be justified. I think the government has an obligation to accommodate people with disabilities who can't be vaccinated. Okay, real quickly, Christine, your group, uh, you guys are not taking position against the vaccine passport because you're anti, anti-vaxxers. No, right? I'm vaccinated. I'm pro-vaccination. Yeah. I think right. everyone should make the choice to get vaccinated if they're able to. But there are some people who are not able to make that choice, and they shouldn't be excluded from society because they live with a disability. Okay, Kyla Lee, give me your, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I disagree with Christine on the issue of the justification of the infringement. There's only a very, very, very small minority of people who can't be vaccinated uh, due to a medical condition, who have a legitimate reason not to be vaccinated. And the infringement for those people on BC's system is only in accessing sort of social activities. It's not in accessing essential services. You can still go to your medical appointments. You can still access government services. Um, you can still do all of these things. You just can't go to a restaurant or a nightclub or a bar or a concert or a show. Discretionary activities versus, you know, necessary activities. And I think that's an appropriate place for the government to draw a line to try and justify this when it does infringe upon the liberties of some individuals. What about Christine's point on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and our, our constitutional protections here in Canada? You know, I think it's a stretch to say that your Section 7 right to life, liberty, and security of the person applies to your ability to go to a concert or a comedy show or to dine out in a restaurant. You still have access to restaurant services. You can still order takeout. Uh, you can still uh, have food delivered uh, to you. Um, so you're not even restricted necessarily in your complete ability to access those things. Um, the charter also only really applies to government interaction with private citizens. So as far as, as the government making the vaccine passport mandatory, it's the, it's the government's decision um, that's at issue here, not uh, the individual businesses that are subject uh, to the charter. Okay. 
Uh, Christine, what do you say to that? So a couple of things. First, I want to respond to whether life, liberty, and security is engaged. I, I, I do think it's engaged. The question is, is whether it's a justified limit. So I think it engages our liberty rights because you have a right to move around freely. But I will admit that, that this is already right that we get limited a lot, right? There are age restrictions on nightclubs. Uh, you can't go into certain municipal parks after, after dark. There's a, there's a lot of restrictions on, on that. But it is engaged. Um, I, I do think that there's a stronger argument that vaccine passports are engaging your security of person because you have a right to make choices about your body. And as the government restricts more and more public space and makes that access to public space subject to agreement to undergo uh, a medical procedure like vaccination that you might not be willing to do, uh, right. it, it's less and less of a choice. It becomes more and more, co- more coercive. But I want to push back on something that Kyla said sure. on whether these spaces that are being limited are essential or not. So um, I understand, you know, restaurants are not um, not in the same category as like going to a doctor's office. But one of the people that I've been speaking to, uh, she's a medically complex woman. She has had many, many surgeries. She has, she's uh, contraindicated for a lot of different medications. She has a, a, a genetic um, disability. And she does swim therapy as part of how she manages her disability. So she, she actually does a huge amount of swim therapy. She has about four hours of swim therapy a day because it's really the only time she moves her body. And she d- is not vaccinated. She's made the choice to not get vaccinated because of her really complex medical history. And, uh, the only, and, and she understands it's a trade-off, right? If she got COVID, she would get very sick. Um, but she also is afraid that the vaccine will make her very sick. So she's made the choice to live a relatively isolated lifestyle, except for her swim therapy. But the swimming pools are subject to the vaccine passport policy. And this inability for her to access the pool is going to have a really okay. adverse effect on her health. Like she okay. needs this to manage her disability. It's interesting you bring up that example because I cited a very similar example to Dr. Bonnie Henry on the show yesterday. And she said that medical services and ther- therapeutics and ther- therapeutic uh, programs like that would not uh, fall under the, the vaccine restrictions of the vaccine card system. But that doesn't seem t- precisely clear to me in the rules that have been outlined by government. But let me ask you this, and Kyla, let me go back to you here. Like, I think that you know, Christine made the case about the security of the person under, under the Constitution. What about the security of the person for the people who might be exposed to COVID-19 from someone who is unvaccinated? So if you have someone who's unvaccinated, they're more likely to get the virus, they're more likely to spread it. Is that where the reasonable, just the justified infringement on our rights kicks in? Like if this gets in front of a judge, is, is that the argument that, yeah, it, this is a reasonable infringement on someone's rights because someone else's rights are being affected if, you, if they're exposed to COVID? But your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. I mean, even the individual that Christine just described is the perfect example of this. If if she's exposed to numerous unvaccinated people, um, she's at a much greater risk of catching COVID and a much greater risk medically if she catches COVID than, you know, somebody who's young and healthy and not overweight. Um, And so this is a situation of competing rights. And we've seen our Supreme Court of Canada deal with competing rights uh, very recently, a case probably Christine might be familiar with because I think think her organization was involved in it. in the uh, Trinity Western University 
um, uh, lawsuit uh, where there was the competing religious rights versus the rights of individuals from the queer community not to be subject to the discrimination uh, that was found in the uh, the school's charter. And that was balanced by the Supreme Court of Canada by looking at what had the potential to have the most harm on individuals. And the potential for the most harm here is on somebody getting sick and dying versus right. somebody not being able to access services in a short-term period of time. Okay, Christine, real quick, and then we'll take a break and continue here, but what about that? What about the right of other people, vaccinated people, not to be exposed to the virus from someone who's unvaccinated, let's say in a restaurant or a nightclub or bar? Yeah, so I agree this is about competing rights, and and all of this goes into the Section 1 analysis about how we limit rights, and those limits need to be minimally impairing, rationally connected, and proportionate. And I think there's a bunch of things that we need to keep in mind when asking about that justification. Um, For example, are there less intrusive alternatives? Or what about the concern that vaccinated people can still get infected and still transmit? Even though they don't get very sick, they could still transmit um, between one another. Um, is there a rationality problem? For example, uh, the, the limits on restaurants that apply to guests but not to staff and mm-hmm. to sit-down restaurants but not take-out restaurants. And finally, uh, the time limit of this. So we know they've said it's going to expire at the end of January. A whole lot of things the government has done, they've told us, is, is going to expire. I, I take that with more than a grain of salt. I will believe it when I see it. So all okay. of this is, is relevant. All right, welcome back. As we continue debating the BC vaccine passport, my guests are Christine Van Gyne and Kyla Lee. Christine, real quick, your group is preparing to go to court over this. Is that correct? Christine? I've spoken. Yeah, hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Go ahead. Okay, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I, I've written to the BC government asking them to create accommodations for people who can't get vaccinated for medical reasons, as the governments have done in Quebec, in Ontario, and as they'll be doing in Nova Scotia. I don't really understand why BC finds it impossible to make this accommodation. Uh, so we've asked them to, to do that. They have so far not responded to our letter, although they did reply in a press conference when asked about it to say they won't be making the accommodation. Right. So I spent yesterday interviewing lawyers uh, that we're working, hoping to work with about a challenge that we're going to okay. have more to say on in the next few days. Okay, watching that closely. Steve in North Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Oh, hi, guys. A um, couple quick points. One is considerations for people with natural immunity i'm not hearing that in the discussion of things two since when is access to the gym or yoga or any exercise type of environments considered non-essential all of us kyla what is more access kyla what do you say to that uh, well, with respect to natural immunity, the science is sort of still unresolved as to how long that lasts and how good the natural immunity is. So I think that's the reason why the government has been sort of shying away from creating any of those exceptions. As far as access to the gym or yoga, you can run, you can exercise, you can do all of that outdoors, you can do all of that in places that uh, don't require a vaccine uh, in order to use them. Right, Christine. What do you say to that? And Bonnie Henry has made a similar point, saying, "Okay, yeah, you can't go. You can't go to Canucks game, but you can watch the game on TV. Yeah, you can't go to a, a restaurant, but it's okay. You can get takeout." How do you respond to that argument? I mean, I, I think that it's it's unfortunate that we're saying to people who may have a disability, um, "Look, we're just going to exclude you. We're not going to make an accommodation. Tough luck. It's terrible. You're disabled. We don't care." I mean, that's not acceptable. We live in a liberal democracy. We need to accommodate people who are different from us. Tony and Surrey, hi. Hi. 
One thing nobody's talked about this whole situation is gig workers such as musicians. Uh, I know a couple of guys are immune uh, compromised. They can't get a vaccine. Uh, guys who play in the clubs, guys who play casinos, guys who play events, uh, you know, parties, weddings, camp banquets, casinos, that sort of kind of thing. Through all of this, nobody has addressed that issue at all. Does that, well, okay, that's interesting. Like, would the vaccine card apply to them? Like, would they be allowed to go into a, a bar to play a gig or, or, or not? Do we know? But. My interpretation of it is that they would be because they'd be considered employees uh, or at least on the short term um, employees or contractors. And so they would be exempt from the vaccine requirement. Okay, Chrissy, what do you think of that? I mean, there are some gaps in this. I mean, you've got restaurants where the employees don't have to be vaccinated, but the customers do. And, and maybe the people playing up on stage in the band don't have to be vaccinated. Yeah, I actually don't. I don't know how it would apply to bands. I haven't yeah, turned I my either. mind to that specific situation, but certainly yeah. we know it applies to guests of restaurants or bars, but not necessarily, but not to the staff. I think right. that's a. Pra- I actually think that's a practical consideration. I think that a lot of these businesses have been closed for a long time, and the government uh, is loath to say, "Hey, you are having trouble retaining staff to begin with. Now right. we're going to make it even harder." Uh, I, I think that that has a. It's just a practical reason. I have, think it, it. I think it actually undermines the rationale, like the public health rationale that they're relying on. But I, I understand why they did it. Okay, Barbara in Cloverdale. Hi. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I just sure. want to say um, that I'm really, really enjoying the conversation. Um, my social media of late has been flooded with um, friends that, um, unbeknownst to me, are um, anti-vax and anti-passport and pro these rallies that have been taking place. And this gives me kind of valuable information from both perspectives um, to kind of enter into what I hope is going to be um, an intelligent discourse with them. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Thank you, Barbara, for that. And this is what we're striving for here on the show. So I do appreciate that feedback. Bernie and Mission. Hi, Bernie. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Just a quick comment. I, uh, to some degree at least, can appreciate what uh, your one guest, uh, Christine, is saying there, having been uh, part of a pain management mobility program for many years due to vehicular damage. I have been completely restricted from accessing that program because it's part of a private clinic because of the pandemic, despite my status as double vaccinated. Um, but there was a guest on the Jill Bennett the other day, a show the other day, who said there's only about 30 people in this province who have true medical restrictions as to their ability to receive vaccinations. And so um, I also I heard your guest say that her her client made the choice not to get vaccinated. Big difference between choosing and actually having medical reasons that don't allow you. That's number okay. one. Number two, Bernie. I thank you. Like I got I guess got to cut. I got to limit you to that because uh, we just have a minute left. So Christine, I'll give you both uh, thirty seconds each here to wrap up and respond. There, Christine, you go first. Yeah. So for a lot of people. The, the, the decision to get vaccinated or not, especially if you work medically complex, is a really deeply personal choice. 
And it, you're making a lot of trade-offs that healthy people, right. perfectly healthy people, might not need to make. Okay. And I think it's concerning to limit it to only a, a very narrow range of reasons you can't get vaccinated. I think that's concerning. You need Kyla. to give patients the right to make their own choices. Kyla, you got like 15 seconds here. I'm sorry to limit you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think when it comes down to a deeply personal choice, then when you make a choice, like anytime you make a choice, you accept the consequences that come with that choice, fully okay. informed as people are. But you can get magazines that have higher capacity that put up, that they put on these weapons. And I'm yeah. just saying the larger amount of deaths that have happened in mass shootings have been with these weapons. Okay, that was from yesterday's show. Randeep Sarai, the liberal MP who's running for re-election in Vancouver. And we were talking about the gun control debate on the federal election campaign trail. Remember that Justin Trudeau and his government had banned those assault weapons or what the liberal government defines as assault weapons. Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, had said he would repeal that. He's been less clear, I would say, on this point on the campaign trail the last few days, uh, maybe because he's a, a little bit nervous about this issue and when it comes to voting day. Let's discuss now. we got the other side of it for you. Rod Giltaka, CEO canadian coalition for firearm rights i'm pleased to welcome him back rod thank you for coming on thanks for having me mike okay rod where are we at right now with this issue from from your perspective in the federal election right now because you know it's interesting to listen to aaron o'toole whom i i think had been fairly clear on this point earlier that they were opposed to this gun ban that the trudeau government had brought in and he would repeal it now, lately, he's been saying, oh, no, I'm going to leave the I'm going to leave that ban in place. But, you know, I'll review it later. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? What, why is he being less clear on this point now? Well, um, Aaron O'Toole is doing exactly what he needed to do, because uh, disingenuously, as, as usual, Justin Trudeau thinks that this election is about gun control. You know, he was sliding in the polls. Nobody believes him. You know, you, you can't trust him. Canadians feel it. They're, they're, it's being reflected at the polls. So he pulls out the Hail Mary that they pull out every time. Every time there's a scandal or, need, or they need a channel changer, it's they break the glass and pull out gun control and, and start screaming from the rooftops, the assault weapons are coming, the assault weapons are coming. And, and O'Toole had to take that off the table because that's not what this election is about. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Do you, do you think, do you still have confidence that if Aaron O'Toole becomes the prime minister, he'll repeal this assault weapon ban. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I think like he was clear and he 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 changed directions, and that was clear too. Um, but what I what I would say about Aaron O'Toole is I do have some level of trust in him that at least gun owners will be treated fairly. We'll have a seat at the table. The you know if he does a full review of the Firearms Act and classification, at least Canadians will actually see the truth instead of this obscured backroom stuff that the liberals are constantly doing when it comes to gun control they're so disingenuous it's hard to describe it so at least there'll be a transparent process and you know just as a regular person i'm 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 okay with that okay let me play another couple of clips here rod for you from yesterday's show and get your thoughts this is liberal candidate randeep sarai and here he is speaking about this issue around the conservatives position on this and whether they would repeal uh, this assault weapon ban. Have a listen, and then I'll get your thoughts on the other side. Uh, the take is clear. We've uh, we've banned assault rifles, and uh, they, these are rifles that are designed to kill other people in the fastest 
process possible. Uh, they're made for paramilitary and military use only, and they should not belong in civilian hands. We banned them, and uh, the Conservatives have said they're going to repeal it. It's in their platform on page 90. Okay, Randeep Sarai yesterday. What do you think about what he said? First of all, let's start with that description of these particular guns that have been banned, where he says that he's, and I challenged him on this yesterday on the show, where he says, oh, these guns are designed to kill the most number of people as, as fast as possible. How do you react to that? Well, well, of course, Sarai doesn't have a clue about what he's talking about. He knows not, absolutely nothing about firearms, obviously. And he's parroting, you know, talking points designed to scare people so that they don't really... Most Canadians don't care about gun control. It's, you know, that, that's, that's the fact. But it's, it's a fear-based uh, strategy, and it works. It really does work. And that's why they keep using it. So what Sarai says, all he's doing is regurgitating talking points from Bill Blair and Justin Trudeau, which neither of them are experts about firearms. So it's, it's talking points to scare people that don't know anything about the topic, and, and it's nothing more than that. Well, I, I pointed out to him on the show yesterday that when you describe a gun as having the capacity to kill as many people as fast as possible. Like, I think most reasonable people would say you're describing a fully automatic weapon where you you press the trigger down once, you hold it down, and it sprays out bullets like a machine gun. And, of course, those weapons are are already banned in Canada. The the so-called assault weapons that the Trudeau government is banning, they are semi-automatic rifles, right? Like, you got to pull the trigger once for each bullet, and you can only have five extra bullets in a magazine that's Cor- that, correct that, that's that's correct and we've yeah. used these these are firearms that were deemed safe and appropriate for canadians to own uh, by the rcmp we've had them for 60 years in this country there's tons of gun culture and competitions and clubs and and camaraderie and all these all completely safe this is these guns are not a problem have people used guns and cars and knives and bombs to 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 hurt people? Absolutely, but these yeah. guns in the in the hands of people that have them in Canada legally, like me, are not a problem. And again, it's a fabricated issue to try to win an election, a six hundred and ten million dollar vanity election in the middle of a pandemic, for a guy that already had all the power he wanted but just doesn't want to even answer to the NDP or anybody else. That's okay. why we're in this election in the first place. For people who support the government on this gun control measure, Rod, they may look at some of these weapons, and we've already described how they work as a semi-automatic rifle, but they're, they're scary looking, right? I mean, they're nasty looking. They're typically, they've typically got that sort of folding stock. They've got like a pistol grip. They're, they're almost always sort of flat black in color. I mean, they look like a military weapon. It looks like something that a soldier would be toting around on a, on a battlefield. And I think a lot of people look at that and say, why would anybody need that? Or why would anybody want one? So for like an AR-16, for example, you correct me if I'm wrong, but when those were legal before the government took the action that they did, the only thing you can do with an AR-16 if you owned one was you could take it to a gun range and use it for, like, target shooting, and that's basically it, that's, right? That's correct, AR-15. Yeah. But AR-15, yeah, sorry, yeah. You, you, can, you, have to, you have to store it, unload it in a safe or in a locked case with a secure locking device, a trigger locker cable on it on top of that, ammunition nowhere near the firearm, unless it's locked in the safe as well, because you're not legally obligated to lock ammunition on its own. Um, and you can only take it to and from, in the most direct, in the most reasonably direct route in the circumstances, to a, a designated shooting range and fire it there and bring it straight home. Like, this is, 
you know, they, the, the liberals talk like we're riding around and, you know, with, with an AR-15 in the front seat of our car in case we get into a fender bender. It's a fantasy. It's dishonest. It's scaring people for no good reason. There's enough to be afraid of in this world these days. Yeah. And I just, I hope that people can understand that this is, it's wrong. They're a, a bad governing party and they're disingenuous well, and they, got, they have to lose. Well, I think it's, well, I think it's obvious why they're doing it though. I mean, and it appears to be working the way the, the conservatives are kind of ducking for cover here on this thing. I tried to get the conservatives this week to come on the show and talk about this today and they were not interested. Let me play another clip here for you from Randeep Sarai, the, the NDP candidate we had yesterday. And here he is, Rod, talking about the assault weapon ban and how he says there's big public support for it. Have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. The Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police and the emergency physicians have all stated we need to remove those because we've seen them. They've been diverted for different uses. They've been sold on an illicit market, um, and they've been used. All our mass shootings, or the majority of mass shootings in Canada, have been used with these weapons. And uh, I, my constituents and the people I speak to at the door do not want these, and that's why we prohibited them, uh, prohibited them in 2019, and uh, and last May we prohibited uh, those right. that were designed for the battlefield, and we've done strengthen. Okay, so when he says, Rod, that this is what the police chiefs want, they're supported, the government's supported by the police chiefs in Canada to ban these weapons. Your thoughts? Well, the, the Chiefs of Police is, um, um, the Canadian Chiefs of Police Association is a political organization, number one. Number two, I'm not sure that they actually approved of that ban. And number three, the National Police Federation, the largest police, one of the largest police unions in the world, the RCMP Police Union, have, have denounced this ban as ridiculous and a waste of resources when they need real yeah. resources to go after criminals. And then when, when, when Sarai says something ridiculous like the majority of mass shootings in Canada use these kinds of firearms, I just, I, it, it's grating when, when guys will get on the radio, they'll shoot their mouths off, they, they don't know anything about this stuff. What he said isn't true, because I know of every single mass shooting in Canadian history. And some of the biggest ones were done with pump-action firearms. So, mm. you know, and, and, and lever-action, in fact, too. So it's, it's like, mm. you know, this is, this is the misinformation from the party that screams about misinformation all the time. Okay. This is what we have to tolerate as law-abiding gun owners every day. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the statement that was put out by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and it's talking about the ban on assault weapons in Canada, and it says the association supports improving safety for frontline police officers and the public, and we appreciate the federal government's commitment to this issue. That was their oh. statement on this, yeah. Well, isn't that interesting, so, right? What's interesting? Well, what do you mean? Well, didn't they, did they say... We, we wholeheartedly approve of the ban on military-style assault weapons, or was that a little bit of a roundabout way to say, oh, yeah, we, we sort of like it? I don't mm-hmm. know. I think, okay. I, think, I, think, I think the Chiefs could have used some pretty clear language, too. I mean, who, maybe they'll come out and, and, and approve it. But, again, they're not the only voice for law enforcement, not even the biggest voice for law enforcement in the country. And uh, for some reason, the, the, uh, the Liberals don't want to acknowledge that the, the National Police Federation are not behind them. And those are the guys that are on the street. 18,000 of them. Okay, do you think, Aaron O'Toole has said that the higher priority should be stopping illegal guns from being smuggled from the United States into Canada. That's the real problem, not going after law-abiding legal gun owners on our side of the border. Let me play another clip here for you from the Liberal candidate we had on yesterday, Randeep Sarai, talking about this issue where he pushes back on this point about illegally smuggled guns from the United States. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts here. Let me just quote you what the Edmonton police chief said. He said, roughly 5 to 10% of Edmonton's 
crime guns are coming from the U.S. border. The remainder have either been acquired legally or obtained through straw purchases or stolen. So they're domestic guns that are stolen or used in these arms. Same thing with the Regina police chief. Same thing with the Saskatoon police chief. They all say most of the guns used in Canada, or a large percentage of them, are domestically used and not from the border. But we're also strengthening the border. Rod Giltaka, your thoughts on that? Well, as we've said before, in different areas, these guns come from different sources. And it depends how much criminal activity you have. Edmonton has some problems. And typically, they're problems that are generated by the same small group of people. So when it comes to where crime guns come from, overall across the nation, it's generally accepted that 70% come from the border, 30% are stolen. And then a fraction, like seven one thousandths of 1% come from straw purchasing, which is, which is licensed gun owners buying guns on behalf of unlicensed people. So when it comes to stolen guns, these are, these are gun owners that are victims of property crime, which is the police's job to stop that too. But I just find it kind of interesting how it's like, well, we can't stop anyone from breaking into your home and taking your things, so therefore you need to have your property taken. And so this, mm. this passing of the buck and unaccountability, is just, it, is, it definitely is frustrating. Okay, Rod, uh, always appreciate your time on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the BC vaccine passport now. The BC vaccine card kicks in this Monday. Proof of vaccination will be required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, and other non-essential venues. We've talked about the protests and the opposition to the vaccine passport on the show today. We had an awesome debate on that earlier, but opinion polls continue to show strong support overall for the vaccine passports, including a brand new poll from the Angus Reid Group. And let's uh, check in with Dave Korzynski now, Research Director at Angus Reid. Dave, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem. Happy to join. Hey, Dave, let's talk first about an interesting poll as always here. Let's talk first of all about support for the vaccine passport. And you've done a great survey across the country here, broken it down regionally. Let's, let's talk first of all overall in Canada. Is there widespread support for vaccine passports across the country? There is, yeah. And, and one of the things that's happened since May when we first started asking about this was in May, um, we had strong support for vaccine passports, but mostly just for travel purposes. So if you want to leave the country or if you want to get on a domestic flight, we had about 80% support for those items months ago. But now the the use in your own community is what's really kind of picking up uh, and almost meeting those those support levels now. So in May, only 55% of Canadians said that they liked the idea of having to show proof of vaccination uh, at public places in their community, like restaurants or malls or movie theaters. In July, we saw a slight uptick to 59%. And in this study, we've got it at 70% now who say that that's something that they could support in their community or that they, they would like to see. So that's, that's where we've seen it. These, these more like personal spaces rather than just international travel where people have been supportive for a longer period. Okay, 70% support for a vaccine passport, and so what, about 30% opposition? Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. If you look at the opposition, you've got about 9% of people who say that they they disagree or oppose it, 19% who feel strongly about that, so they take that that more extreme option there. So 30%, and then 3% of Canadians and 3% in BC say that they don't know, so they're they're still making up their mind. Yeah, I mean, so there's a significant minority opposition to 
the passport. Uh, let's let's uh, break it down in, by in British Columbia here. What numbers did you find out in British Columbia attitudes toward yeah. the passport? Yeah, and I, I think that that helps to speak to why you see protests that appear to be really large. Because if you've got, you know, in BC, it's twenty five percent who oppose the, the idea. Right. So, you know, one in, one in four adults. It's it's not hard to imagine that that group of people uh, getting together and, and and being a very large group. So sure, there, you. It's a, it is a minority, but it's a considerable minority of hundreds of thousands of people. So. It's uh, it's certainly a challenge. Um, I think that's what the government is up against here, and what we're seeing a little bit in the federal debate as well about this issue is that you know not everybody agrees. And what do you do with that group of people who who disagree? Because there there are so many of them when you extrapolate the data. Yeah, and when we take a look across the country at the way that different provinces are approaching this, we we see kind of a patchwork approach. We've got some provinces that are bringing in the vaccine card, the vaccine passport, uh, with different exclusion rules from province to province, and and some provinces who are not doing it at all. Very notably, Alberta is not is not bringing in a, a vaccine passport to date. Correct, even yeah. though like do what what are the public attitudes toward a vaccine passport in Alberta? Yeah, that's that's uh, one where it's going to be very difficult to try to sell that to the public because you've even got a, a pretty significant portion of vaccinated people in Alberta who oppose the idea of a vaccine passport. Um, so we, we do have slight majority support in Alberta, but it's only 54%. Uh, and to remind people, that's it's 72% in BC. So you've got an, an 18 percentage point drop there. 35% in Alberta are, are strongly opposed to it. So uh, add those to the 10% who are, are more lightly opposed to it and don't like the idea. And you've got basically half of the population that, that would push back. And I think that's, for Jason Kenney, that's the really difficult uh, tightrope to walk. Um, he, he said he's not going to implement it, and he's standing pretty firm on that, even though Alberta has the lowest vaccination rates in the country. And the worst COVID outbreak right now. Uh, it's it's a very tough situation, um, and the, the politics of it, uh, in addition to the the health and, and the societal kind of uh, aspects. Yeah, for sure. Alberta seems to be really divided on this question, for sure. Speaking to Dave Korzynski from uh, Angus Reid, he's the research director there. Their new opinion poll on vaccine passports. Dave, I thought one of the fascinating results you got on this survey were public attitudes toward uh, by pe- Canadians who are vaccinated and how they feel about unvaccinated Canadians when they do get sick and they they seek out medical treatment. What did you find out there? Yeah, this is kind of a, sometimes we like to ask these questions that people are having privately or expressing um You've heard this over the course of the last year. You know what these people who who are refusing to get vaccinated, and then are making up you know ninety percent of the hospitalizations. Um, and there's a sense of I think frustration and, and exhaustion from vaccinated people who think that it's it's irresponsible to not get vaccinated. And half of the group. So to give you an idea, about eighty five percent of of Canadians over 12 have had uh, one dose, I believe, in in, uh, in BC. And if you ask these vaccinated Canadians, half of them say that they don't think that unvaccinated people in their community have the same kind of entitlement to healthcare that they do. Um, 
And in a situation where you're seeing rationing of care and cancellation of surgeries um, in places in the United States, ICUs being overrun and doctors potentially having to make decisions about who gets priority for care, uh, 46% say that they think that vaccinated people should get that priority if there's kind of a, a situation where they both have uh, equal claim to care, they would give priority to the vaccinated person. So that really speaks to the divide in our, our communities right now. The fact that people aren't sure that everybody deserves equal access to care, which is one of the kind of foundational wow. principles of the country. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Like I'm taking a close look at the survey question that you asked here, Dave, and you were asked, you asked Canadians which view matches your own. And it says people who choose not to be vaccinated should get lower priority for medical treatment if they're sick with COVID-19. 46% in the survey agreed with that, that if you're not vaccinated, you get sick with COVID, you should get lower priority treatment, medical treatment. So... You know, if you have a situation like let's say you've got a hospital ward that's overrun and the ICU beds are running out and doctors have got to make a difficult decision to triage patients, I guess the people who agree with this would say what they should ask their vaccination status. And if you got sick with COVID, but you didn't get vaccinated, you should go to the back of the line for a hospital bed. Yeah, you know, I was reading an article about a doctor in North Texas who was saying that they're they're having these discussions um, and if you look at the, the states where ICU capacity is over 90 percent, uh, you know, Florida, Missouri, Alabama, Texas, a lot of these places are dealing with this. And doctors are having discussions about the likelihood of a person having a full recovery or survival if they're vaccinated and they've been hospitalized is so much higher that that's something that they might consider, um, you know, this is very much a worst case scenario. And, and yeah very much hope that it doesn't get to this point. But if you right. look at the numbers from last Friday in Alberta, ICU capacity is at 95% now. Um, wow. 18 people died yesterday in Alberta um, from COVID-19. So it's it's certainly uh, an issue that I think is in the back of people's mind right now, and we hope that we don't get there. But there are finite resources, so we, we thought we would uh, see how people feel about the, the philosophical experiment, if nothing else. Okay, interesting result. Always a great survey there. Appreciate you coming on to talk about it today. Thank you. No problem. Anytime.